It is uh, good to see everybody this morning. I do want to say hello to anybody who's online. I've been getting some messages that people have been watching online. Um, I always think it's weird that anybody would come and or watch online uh, whenever I'm a part of anything. So hello to those of you who are online, and we're glad you're with us as well. Um, I want to begin with uh, just a little, I don't know, kind of some research, um, not mine, other people's. Um, in 1990, uh, peanut allergies were not very common. Uh, roughly about four in 1,000 people had a peanut allergy. In the mid-1990s, uh, we began to tell young parents uh, to keep their kids away from peanuts. By the year 2008, uh, that number of people with peanut allergies more than tripled. It went from about 4 in 1,000 to 14 in 1,000. So it became fairly rare to less rare. And so what happened is as we began to hold young people off and our children off from peanuts, what we did is we actually made it more likely that they would develop a peanut allergies. This is because our immune systems are designed from a young age to actually take in allergens and then respond to them and to become resilient to those allergens in our atmosphere. And so by avoiding certain allergens, we have actually become more allergic uh, to our environment and the things around us and less resilient. Uh, some of you, if you've been around here for a little while, you uh, know I'm a pretty big fan of a guy named Johan Hari and, and one of the books that he's written. And he, he talks a lot about mental health and so forth. I'm going to give you a quote by him here in a second. Um, but w the reason for this whole series is because I, I told you every time I've ever done a, a uh, survey of like, what do you guys want me to talk about? Anxiety and stress are always at the top, like certain mental health issues are always at the top. And what I appreciate about what Johan Hari has done and put out there and the information that he has collected is what he has shown is that basically we're not, we're, we're like, we're not living how we, we should be living. So our kind of, our lives are a little messed up and we're primarily kind of trying to do everything um, by either like... Uh, just kind of because we move so fast by, by medicating or, or things like that. And so he has, he has this quote in his book, and he says this. He says, when we think about the mental health crisis, we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more and more about the imbalances in the way that we live. And I'm not saying that if some of you, I'm going to be very careful here, that if some of you are on medicine for anxiety or anything like that, like to not do that. Some of my really good friends are. Um, I know people are, and sometimes you need them. Like, sometimes you're really allergic to peanuts. Um, like, you have a peanut, or, or things have happened to you, and they've even changed you physiologically. And so sometimes you need a, a little bit of help. But for a lot of us, when we think about anxiety and stress and being nervous about certain things, like, we collectively are growing more anxious. And so there's something that we're doing and the way that we're living our lives and the way that we're going about our lives that are contributing to this. And this is, a, this is kind of across all ages and demographics and so forth, but especially among some of our, our younger people. Now, these statistics are a little bit dated, 
But, you know, take this, for instance. In 2009, about 37% of college students, every once in a while, would go to a counselor, and they would tell the counselor they're dealing with anxiety. So about 39% of the general population was still, or 37%, which still seems kind of high to me, but that was there. By 2016, 51% of college students were going to counselors saying that they were dealing with anxiety. So we've been addressing some of the reasons and issues um, that people might be having it, and, and including by the way we live and the way we think. And so we've kind of done four isms. And today's the last one. And so if you're tired of this, you're good. Keep coming back. We're, start, we're getting into Philippians next week. We're going to open a book of the Bible. And we're going to walk through it. Um, but this is the fourth ism here that I, I kind of want to introduce. And it's safetyism. It's safetyism. And this is what safetyism refers to. A culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value, which means that people, are be, which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs, or to ma- trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. In other words, safety trumps everything else. Like, no matter how trivial or unlikely it is to happen, if there's a potential danger, stay away. Don't, don't get near it. Uh, and Nassim Tlaib's book, Anti-Fragile, however, he teaches that people are anti-fragile. And he r- prefers anti-fragile to resilient because he says people are like immune systems. We actually respond and we're strengthened by stressors in our lives. So we require stressors and challenges in order to learn, adapt, and grow. So think of yourself as like one big muscle, okay? You're just one big muscle, to remain functional, you have to work out. You, you have to have challenges and stressors in your life to remain healthy and functional. And if you avoid all difficulties or difficult situations, what, what happens is that the anti-fragile systems that you have in your life, they become rigid or weak or insufficient because nothing challenges them. Nothing pushes them. And so what happens is what you do is you have to have like kind of a, a vigorous response, like a kind of the fight or flight. Like it's all you know. That's the only thing that you can do. And what we're discovering, this, this is not good for us, nor has it been kind of common knowledge to do these sorts of things or traditional, or traditional understanding of what even it means to be human. Now, the biblical writers, they never use the word antifragile. But I think they would agree with Tlaib about what he has to say, some of this. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of James. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is what we're going to read through this morning. James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's um, writing here from Jerusalem to disperse Christians. In other words, Christians who have been pushed out of, of Jerusalem and, and kind of even uh, the Israel a little bit because they were Christians. And so they've been pushed out, and he's writing to them and trying to encourage them here. And he says this. He says, consider it pure joy, (laughs) my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, I want to point out a few things about what James has to say here to the church. Right in the middle of all of this, the beginning of verse 3, he says this, because you know, 
because you know. Now, what did the people know, according to James? That testing and trials of many kinds, like in every part of your life, is good for you. But perhaps if James were writing this today, I think he might say, because you ought to know. Because you ought to know. But for them, it was assumed. It was assumed that hardships and challenges and struggles and brokenness were all a part of life. In fact, it's not just James who is Jesus' brothers. If, if I took you to Romans, I could take you to Romans, and I could show you that Paul essentially writes the very same thing, almost using some of the very same words. Or I could take you to Peter, who is also writing to a dispersed church throughout Asia, and I could show you how, how Peter, like Jesus' right-hand man, wrote almost essentially the same thing to the church. And so what we can be fairly certain of is either Jesus taught this to them, maybe in these words, maybe in different, or that it was commonly assumed among the Jewish Christians there that, that hardship and troubles and challenges were a part of life. And just because you were a follower of Jesus, that these testings and trials, that they weren't going to be taken from you, but they were there in front of you and that they weren't removed. In other words, when he says, because you know that testing and trials are going to be there, when bad things happen, like you, you shouldn't be caught off guard. I know we are, all are, I am, often. Like, how in the world did that happen to me? But we are the people who believe that sin is real. Like, we are the people who believe that, that we sit, that we mess things up. And some of our trials and some of our testing comes because we have done something. We also believe that others do. And some, some of our trials and some of our testing comes from other people wronging us or other people messing up or other people not doing their job. We also just generally believe that we, we live in a broken world, that, that things aren't as they should be, that we pray for the kingdom to come, that we work for the kingdom to come, but that there, the, the kingdom is, is, is not completely realized yet. And so we, we deal with the brokenness of the world. And so we know testing and trials come in front of us, and all kinds of testings and trials come, many kinds, physical, psychological, spiritual. They're, they're all there in front of us. So what we must do is we have to prepare others. You have to be prepared. Like, whatever frightens us, whatever makes us anxious, whatever we're kind of scared of or dealing with, we have to prepare ourselves for. And so we have to, have to get our minds where they're supposed to be. We have to understand that this is part of our life. Your mind is a, a powerful tool. This is why you, I want you to understand this and get this in front of you. Your mind is a really powerful tool. And through it, Right? You can either kind of almost create good or bad situations, or even you, you, you kind of know how to navigate through by the way you think about certain situations. John Milton said this. He said, the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. In other words, right, how we frame things really matters in our mind. How we interpret things, it, it really matters. And so, so some of us, we're, we're like anxious about things that we shouldn't even be anxious about. Like we're, 
maybe we should even be excited about them, which is an interesting thing in and of itself, because if you talk to psychologists, what they will tell you, and what you will know yourself, by the way, like you know this, the same thing that makes you anxious, like the same way that you feel when you get anxious, you feel the same way when you get excited. And, and so psychologists will tell you, okay, you're anxious. Well, no. Like, reframe that. Get excited. You, you should be excited. Now, I know there are some situations in our lives that just, like, God, Josh, I'm not going to get excited about that. But we have to learn how to interpret things and believe that God is doing something in us and through us. And this is why James starts this, this, this verse here and telling the church here something that seems ridiculous. At least it seems ridiculous to me. He tells them to count it all joy. Count it pure joy is what he says. The word pure can either mean pure, it can mean only, it can mean unmixed. In other words, when trials, temptations, tests come your way, count it only joy, that only, unmixed with other emotions. Not that happiness is the first emotion, that, like that's, that's not what he's talking about here. But he's saying what these tests are going to do is they're not going to destroy you. That God is doing something in and through you through this test, and you have to believe that God is in your midst, and God wants to do something greater in you than has been done already. And so we count it all joy. Jesus is in the garden, and he's sweating. If you kind of read through the text, what you discover is that, I mean, he's perspirating blood. He's anxious about going to the cross. Jesus experienced the test, the trials, just like we did. And he goes to the cross, and he dies on the cross, and then he rises from the grave. His endurance of the cross is our life. His endurance of the cross is hope for the rest of the world. It reminds us that, yes, the kingdom is not fully realized, but Jesus' endurance means that it will be. And so here's what I want us to help or help you kind of understand this morning as you think about anxiety and relationship to even safetyism. Understand that what may make you anxious may actually make you better. Like, what may make you anxious has the ability to actually give you life or to make you better where you're at. Um, I've shared with you guys, I'm going to share with you a little bit what makes me anxious. Um, I shared with all of you, uh, you know, growing up, grew up in, in kind of a, a blue-collar family um, in a small town. Like, football was king. Like, being physically tough was, it was just, it, that, that was what was raised really high. And even in, in our, our family, like, the stories, when I talk about framing things, the stories that I heard growing up, growing up was all about either my dad playing football. Like even baseball was a tough sport for us. Like Cincinnati Reds, Big Red Machine, like Pete Rose. I mean, it was, you know, you just talked about hustling, all those sorts of things. I, I, I grew up around that. The stories that I heard about my dad, it was, it was, it was about him like fighting. Um, he lost his dad at a, at a young age, and he's, I mean, he's no bigger than me, you know, played middle linebacker, all these sorts of things. Got kicked out of one game for fighting a tight end that was going to Ohio State. Like, I mean, he wasn't very smart. So, but that's, that's my point. Like, I never heard, though, I never heard of, like, guys in my family being smart. Like, every time I heard about a guy, it was about him being, like, 
physically tough. And so um, I go to Anderson University, and uh, I feel called to ministry at that time. And I actually went there because I felt called to ministry, but I was a decent football player. And I get there, and I remember looking around, and at the time, the, the team had been winning league and all these sorts of things. Everybody's bigger than me, which doesn't take a whole lot. Um, and uh, even meet my roommate and his dad. His dad played uh, left tackle at Wake Forest. So he was 6'6", like shoulders this, you know, all, all of these sorts of things. So I, I told my mom, I said, Mom, like at this point, like I'm getting nervous. I'm like, Mom, you didn't feed me enough. I, I told her that. And, and, I mean, they couldn't do anything. They were, they were no bigger than me either. But so like, I'm kind of nervous, but then I, like, I step out on, on the football field and I begin to realize like, I can play with these guys. That was, that was like, I know how to do this. Like, this is, and, and so my freshman year, I'm playing varsity, first game of the year. Uh, we're, we're playing varsity and kind of fighting for my spot. And uh, I ruptured my kidney uh, at the very beginning of the second quarter. And I'm fighting for a spot. We're playing close to home. Erlen, we're playing at Earlham College. And uh, my uh, mom and dad are there. Some family members are there and ex-girlfriends are there. And uh, so, like, like, in my mind, um, I- I'm like, I'm not coming off the field. I've, I've, got, I've got to play. Um, and so I play as long as I can uh, past the second half. And uh, I return a kick and all that fun stuff with a ruptured kidney, and uh, eventually I'm care-flighted to the hospital. I I just tell you that to say, like, like I was willing to do all of that, like, physically. And it wasn't wasn't scary to me. Like, it was just kind of how I I grew up, what was kind of expected, all those sorts of things, not the return kickoffs for the ruptured kidney. But you get my point. But what was scary to me is when I stepped in the classroom, like, at college, There wasn't stories of men doing well in school or going to college. Like, what's what's scary to me is, like, being on this platform right now. People didn't speak in my family. Um, You know, there's, I don't don't know if you guys know this, but the person up here leading worship this morning, he's got a PhD in church history. He's over here listening to me. (laughs) Why? There's another one sitting here. Well, we have professors from the university here now. Uh, one of the guys who bailed me out of one of my classes is sitting right up here in <laughs> AU. Uh, and, and so this is what makes me nervous. It's actually one of the reasons I'm here. I, I realized that you know, as I was praying through my own ministry and as they were talking to me about coming here, I knew the people who attended here and were around here. And it's like, hey, I know it makes me nervous to speak in front of these people and to teach in front of these people. But they're going to make me better. They're going to make me a better pastor. They're going to make me a better thinker. They're, they're going to they're make me better. And so I wanted to be up in front of them, in front of you. James tells us that our tests and our trials, right, they produce and they enhance our lives. Here there are three things that I just want to get out in front of you. Like whatever you're going through, I want you to maybe think about this. And the first is this, is that your test and your trial, right, whatever makes you anxious is a test of your faith. It's a test of your faith. We're told it's the testing of your faith. Now, in our context, what I believe and what I've discovered by living here is that in this general area, it, it's still relatively cool to be a Christian. Like, there's still some social cachet that you can get when it comes to Christianity. That doesn't mean that your faith won't cause you problems. It doesn't mean that you won't have to make decisions that may push you out. But that is not the case for Christians all around the world or even Christians in other places in our own country. In fact, just in August... Uh, in Pakistan and some of the uh, churches that we're associated with, 20 churches were burned down. 
burned to the ground. A hundred, one hundred Christian families' homes were burned to the ground, and they were forced to flee. These families were basically thrown out on the streets and were homeless, and you can imagine the trauma that they really face, the anxiety that they really face. But let's be honest. Like they, they know there's risk being a Christian in the parts of the world that they live. They, they know it's there, and they still believe. I mean, they, they still follow Jesus. And I sometimes wonder as I think about Christians like that, like, would I believe in Jesus and be willing to go to church on Sunday morning? I mean, think about like how much of an effort it takes us to get to church. They're, they're going to church, bringing their family, their kids to a place that may be burnt down or persecuted, and they still believe. They, they still love God enough. They still trust him enough to know that they, their faith may be tested, that they may go through trials, that they're, they're willing to lose their homes, they're willing to lose their lives, it all. And so some of you, I don't know, maybe you're kind of new to Christianity or you're trying to even figure out if you want to be a Christian, you're like, well, that seems kind of, a, kind of extreme. But to be honest, when you see Christians and, and people like that, what it really shows us is that their, their love for God is sincere. I mean, sincere. Their faith is sincere. I mean, think about the people you love. Would you not lay your life down for them? Would you not, are you not there for them when they need you to be there or when they want you to be there? I mean, this is how God loves us. Jesus laid his life down for us. He gave it to us and for us. And I think when our faith is challenged, it might not be because you're being persecuted or anything like that. You might just be going through a difficult time. And I, I think maybe God's word for you is just, do you trust me right now? Right? Where, where is your faith at right now? Jesus tells us not to be anxious about anything. Do, do you believe that? So what do you need God to help you face with faith right now? What is it? What is it? Uh, second is what makes you anxious can form you into the kind of person who perseveres. Uh, James says the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That word perseverance can mean fortitude, staying power, steadfastness. Uh, Douglas Moo, uh, who basically, by the way, he kind of basically writes the textbooks for uh, seminary students as far as Greek is concerned. And he says this about the word perseverance. He says, it's not a timid, passive submission to circumstances, but a strong, active, challenging response in which the satisfying realities of Christianity are proven in practice. In other words, you knock me down, I'm going to get back up. Like, I'm going to practice my faith. If, if something comes at me that is challenging to me, I'm getting back up and I am moving forward. It's the kind of faith that sees a mountain and starts lacing up the boots. It's David looking at Goliath, looking at the giant, and saying, the same God who helped me slay the lion and the bear is going to help me slay Goliath. It's seeing that your test ultimately is not your grave, but an opportunity. There's a parable of the old mule, and 
the mule's going about it today, and it falls in a well, and it starts, stops, starts braying. I, not, I don't know if I should make a mule sound or not, but you know what I'm talking about, right? So, so the, the mule is in the well, and it's freaking out, and the farmer finds the mule in the well, and the farmer walks up to it, and he realizes that he really doesn't have a need for the mule anymore or the well. And so what the farmer does is he goes, and he gets his neighbors, and he tells his neighbors, it's time to go ahead and get rid of this old well and bury the mule. And so they get their shovels, and they start shoveling and throwing the dirt into the well. And you can imagine the mule begins to freak out. And so as the dirt begins to hit the mule's back, he begins to freak out. But then he says, stop. He stops. He says, wait a second. And what the mule begins to do, he begins to shake the dirt off of his back, and the dirt falls on the ground, and the mule begins to step up. So as they keep shoveling dirt on the back of the mule, the mule keeps telling himself, shake it off and step up. Shake it off and step up. Eventually, that mule is at the top of the well and walks out of the well. What was meant to destroy the mule actually ended up being the mule's salvation. What was meant to bless or to bury the mule ended up being a blessing. And often, our trials and our tests our decisions on what, how we make to face the adversity in front of us and what's coming after us. Your test can help you be the kind of person who perseveres. And finally, last but not least, what makes you anxious can move you, move you toward maturity and completion. Uh, look at James, what James says to them. He says, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God has a long-term strategy for you. Uh, Julie Lithcott-Hames, in her book, How to Raise an Adult, she sits down with parents and talks with them about different stra parenting strategies they have. And what she's noticed is that there are certain parents who won't allow their 17-year-old, that's kind of the, the analogy that she uses, um, to ride the subway. And not a problem that a lot of us have, but um, living here. Uh, but she then asked them, she asked them that. She says, well, what's your long-term strategy? Like, what's, what's your long-term strategy for that kid? Right? Uh, similarly, Lunikoff and Haidt say this, is that we can be pretty confident that the modern obsession with protecting our young people from feeling unsafe is one of the several causes of the rapid rise in rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide. In other words, us asking people and our young people even to be safe all the time is causing peanut allergies. Like we're, we're causing pe our young people to be anxious. And that's kind of what we're doing. And so I think we need to be asking even of our kids and our young people like, what's, what's our long-term strategy for them? Like, what do we want for our young, our young people? Are we helping them be anti-fragile? When we rob them of challenges, when we rob them of experience, we rob them of the ability to exercise their faith and have a level of self-confidence that they can move forward. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to take reasonable uh, precautions. 
in, in general, it's a good thing that we have smoke detectors in our home. It's a good thing for your kid to wear a seatbelt, a helmet, not to smoke in the house, to use lead paint. This is, this is honestly, it's led to 57% and drop and child's death. And just so you're, if you're wondering, like even in our, our church, we tell people, like there's, there's cameras everywhere, just in case. There's two adults in every room. I tell people, you see anything, if anything illegal, just go straight to the police, right? And then come to me. We, we want to be very careful about all of that. But I also think back, and I'm an older millennial. This is time for us to rant about young people. Um, I, I'm an older millennial, and basically our, my parents did none of those with me outside of maybe the lead paint. <laughs> like, I, I don't remember. I didn't wear a seatbelt until, until I got my own license. Um, I, our, we had an old Monte Carlo when I was a kid. This is what kept me in my seat. We had, a, we had an old Monte Carlo when I was a kid, and it had a hole in the floorboard in the back where the kids sat. And so what kept you in your seat is you didn't want to fall through the hole in the floorboard. You could see the road. I'm not joking. You could, you could see the road there. And I'm not sure if most of the houses in my family had smoke detectors because most people smoked, like most families smoked or had smokers in, in the house. This is not a joke either. I still have a bag. I still have a bag I use and I travel with that is a Marlboro bag. Um, you smoked enough cowboy killers like you could, you're not, I think it's even illegal to do this now. You could, you could turn in your points and you could get things from Marlboro. Their, their, their swag is, is actually was high quality. Um, I mean, it's got to be like 30 years old. I, I still use it, I promise. Uh, we, used to, we used to ride my bike by myself, probably like eight or nine. I think I bought my per, per, first pocket knife at probably like, eight years old, maybe younger, at a hardware store that would sell knives to kids. Um, but we would, we would, you know, we would ride to the park around that eight. Like, we'd be there all day. We'd, we'd play ball. We'd get into fights because, because that's what you did when you were younger. Like, not, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I tell Mike, be nice, treat people how you would want to be treated. But we, like, worked it out. Like, we figured, I went back the next day. My, my last name is Dieter. It rhymes with some weird stuff. Um, <laughs> Like, like, let's be, like, I'm not, I, I'm okay, like, I'm not traumatized by any of that. Like, it, it's, it's okay, and so, like, we need to be thinking about this with our, for our own kids, because safetyism, like, if we just throw it on our kids, what it does is it actually makes them fragile and anxious and more receptive to an anti-truth, which is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, Right? My goal for my own kids, and by the way, I am going to get this wrong, and I am going to mess them up, and they're going to need a counselor after living in my house for 18 years. I'm just going to tell you this, but, but my goal for them is to be the kind of, kind of people that can overcome tests and trials. Like, that's my goal for them. I want them to be Christians above anything else, but I want them to be Christians with some fortitude. I, I want them to be able not to be the vulnerable and to be the victim. Things happen. They could be victimized. I, I don't know what will happen in their lives. But I want them to be the kind of people who can step in the place of the vulnerable and the victimized and say, hey, I am there for them. Like, I'm going to help take care of them. I'm going to help fight for them. Right? But, but not because I'm going to stay in that place. 
but because I've had things done to me, but I'm going to walk out of it. Like, those are the types of kids that I want. And so, I mean, this is, this is just Josh here giving advice. This is, Paul does this in Corinthians. This is not, and this is just for me from reading a few things here. Like, this is for us, middle class, upper middle class Americans. And this is what I'm reading from other people. I'm not making this up. Here's some things that we can do. Just let our kids play. Seriously. Like, let our, ki- let our kids play. Unsupervised. <laughs> and let them work things out. Like, honestly, like, a five-year-old gets in a fight is not a big deal. I, again, I tell my kids, do to others. Like, so if I hear about it, they're in trouble to a certain extent. If they fall off the playground, like, it's okay. They'll get back up. They'll cry. But it's okay. It teaches kids to learn how to navigate other relationships and danger and risk and other people. And it's better for them to learn when they're five or seven or eight than when they're 35 or 25. And it makes them anxious and they struggle to do it. Another thing is to let kids do some things for themselves and be okay with them failing. Like, it's, it's okay. I, I fail at things all the time. I, I don't want it to destroy me. And we do. We live in a, a culture like we're afraid of that. Like my, I feel like, um, I mean, my kids are pretty good, like interpersonally for the most part. I mean, they say and do stupid stuff all the time, and I want to strangle them. But, <laughs> but like even Emily and I, like, it's like they sell stuff. And so I'm telling, like, we live in a safe neighborhood. Like, go let our, our let our kids sell their own stuff in our neighborhood. Like, just let them go. No, we can't do that. Why not? We'll be turned into child protective services. What are you talking about? Like, nobody wants our kids. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. This is true. Go read every statistical data, data. Now, this is the chicken or the egg. Your kids are safer now than they've ever been. Nobody wants your kids either. Right? And, and like, you, you know. By the way, if you're the type of parent who is afraid of your kids being neglected or any of those sorts of things, you're probably the type of parent who knows. Like, okay, this is safe, this is unsafe to a certain extent, or this is good, this is bad. And by the way, we all get it wrong. The thing that is actually making our kids most anxious and our young people most anxious, if we really look at the data, are screens. Like, what we're actually using to pacify them to a certain extent. I mean, it's clear. Uh, And I'm not against social media. We use it as a church. We actually just talked to our social media team. We need to ramp it up all those sorts of things, but two hours or more, it just shows, like, it destroys our young people. It makes them anxious. So, like, we're protecting them from the things that they don't need to be protected from to be functional adults, and we're, we're giving them things that destroy them, like, that make them anxious. It's not leading them to maturity and completion and who God would have them to be. Like, give them some adventure. Now, this is a series called You Asked For It. Um, and I'm going to end this series kind of by asking you a question here. What is, what is your end goal? Like your life. Get away from the kids, young people there. Like what kind of person, when you think about anxiety, because what anxiety does is it holds us back from so much. What kind of, what kind of person do you want to be? Like who are, who are you striving after? When you look back on your life, 
what do you want to make sure that anxiety doesn't keep you from accomplishing? And very simply, are you living by faith? Like sincere faith. Do you... If you've ever read the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know there's a scene and uh, Susan is getting ready to meet Aslan. I've been talking about Aslan all throughout the book. And Aslan is basically the Christ figure. He's the God figure. And uh, Susan is talking to the beaver here. And the beaver explains to Susan that, Susan's a li- or that Aslan's a lion. And Susan basically says, oh, no, I-, I thought he was a man. And the beaver's like, no, Aslan's a lion. And Susan's next question is, well, is he safe? And the beaver looks at Susan and says, oh, no. Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. But he's good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? No matter what you're going through, no matter what has happened to you, God is good. And God can lead you out of that. And God can walk with you through it. In the book of Romans, we're told this. And I just want you to reflect on this. And I'm going to give you an opportunity here as the band plays. If you want to go to the prayer nook here and pray, you can feel free to do that. Or if you want to uh, come and and give a prayer request here, you just want to kind of maybe release some of your anxieties to God, anything that you've been worrying about, anything that you've been struggling with, do it. But here's what Paul writes to the church here. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God turns everything into good. God means it for you good, for for your good. He is faithful. And nothing can destroy you. Nothing can destroy you that God cannot resurrect. I hope you'll believe that this morning. Why don't you pray for me and go ahead and stand as we pray. Father, we come to you and we come to Jesus. We hopefully come led by the Spirit of God. And I pray, Father, that you would help us release any anxieties that we have, that we give them to you, that we live by faith, that even in the midst of maybe anything that's making us anxious, that we would persevere, that we'd keep moving on, that we'd be like that, that old mule. Father, that's just not going to give up. We're going to shake it off and we're going to step up. Father, that we be people that believe that you are actually at work in our lives, bringing us to maturity and completion. That you are doing something in us and through us. And Father, because of that, we pray that we would not be anxious about anything, but that we would give everything to you. That we would believe that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. And so, Father, increase our love for Jesus this morning. I pray if there's anybody in here who has something to give to you, to release to you, and they want to do that in a physical way that they would, the prayer wall or the prayer nook, 
Let us respond how you would have us to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.